ultimately, I think we have to think very carefully about what we're trying to achieve in our aortic practice. Are, are we preventing rupture? Are we just trying to reassure patients? Are we treating as a technical exercise? Or are we doing what we really should be considering, which is long, longevity of life? Are we prolonging people's life and preventing cardiovascular death? And I think that is the key for me. And whatever, again, whatever I thought and others thought of NICE guidelines, it's raised our awareness of these topics. And I think it's really important if we're going to prevent a recurrence of that dramatic recommendation from NICE when it's reviewed again, then we've got to consider all these aspects of our practice. With over 500,000 patients treated globally, Impact Admiral Drug Coated Balloon is the market leading DCB for treatment of femoropopliteal disease. Learn more about how 75% of patients with PAD remain intervention free for up to five years with Impact Admiral DCB by visiting medtronic.eu forward slash five year DCB. You're listening to the Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Today's host is Dr. Stephen Black. Welcome to uh, uh, this in an ongoing series of podcasts. Uh, I am Stephen Black. I'm the host for today's podcast, and I'm joined by uh, a number of esteemed colleagues, uh, Professor Ian Loftus from uh, St. George's Vascular Institute, Professor Bijan Moderai from Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital, and uh, Dr. Jude Partridge, also from Guys and St. Thomas's. And the topic of today's podcast is really to just have a discussion in, in, in this era, and I suppose COVID has focused us a bit on appropriateness of intervention uh, for aortic disease. Uh, and we've, we've had a few things in the last year that have brought this into focus. Uh, obviously, the NICE guidelines were a really hot topic of discussion and, uh, uh, and heavily debated. Uh, we've also seen huge disruptions to aortic services over the last year from COVID, which has uh, made us have to make decisions that perhaps were uncomfortable, like increasing the aneurysm threshold size. Uh, and uh, increasing awareness of, 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 of trying to focus treatment for the right patients, which is a, a universal issue facing vascular surgery. So, um, Ian, I suppose we can kick off with you, really, is, is the, you know, the NICE guidelines were really hotly debated. And, and you know, as, a, as that has kind of evolved in the fallout from that, where, where do you think, uh, what do you think that's helped in, in terms of taking a conversation forward about selecting the right patients for aneurysm intervention. Uh, thanks, Steve. I, I mean, I think it, this discussion highlights what NICE has raised awareness of, which is appropriateness of treatment. And if we think back over the last 10 years or so of what we've been doing, there probably is quite a lot of inappropriate management of aneurysmal disease um, across the whole spectrum of aortic aneurysmal disease. Um, so I think there are a number of issues that NICE highlighted. And however unpalatable the NICE draft guideline was for us, for those of us with a large endovascular practice, actually, I think that they were pretty justified in their conclusions from the literature uh, on a number of levels. So if we think about it, you know, the long-term results from endovascular repair are not as good as we would want. Um, it's expensive technology. There's been a lot of inappropriate use of technology, and I say there has been, but there still is. If you look across uh, practice, I'm sure there still is quite significant inappropriate use of technology off IFU, patients who perhaps shouldn't be treated. 
And ultimately, I think we have to think very carefully about what we're trying to achieve in our AORTIC practice. Are, are we preventing rupture? Are we just trying to reassure patients? Are we treating as a technical exercise? Or are we doing what we really should be considering, which is long, longevity of life? Are we prolonging people's life and preventing cardiovascular death? And I think that is the key for me. And Whatever, again, whatever I thought and others thought of NICE guidelines, it's raised our awareness of these topics. And I think it's really important if we're going to prevent a recurrence of that dramatic recommendation from NICE when it's reviewed again, then we've got to consider all these aspects of our practice. Yeah. I mean, Jude, from, from your side, you know, as a, it's, it's a different perspective for you. I mean, I have a slightly different perspective now because my practice has changed completely, I guess. But, uh, Jude, you, you're not involved in the intervention. Your job is looking after the patients before and afterwards. So what is your perspective on, on these, these sort of thoughts? So, I mean, I suppose to echo what Ian said, that the pause we've had with the COVID pandemic and the um, and the discussion that the NICE guidelines have raised really have focused our minds on making sure that we are doing the right thing for a predominantly older group of patients. So, in the main, these patients are older, they often have vascular risk factors, they're often frail, and they're often multimorbid. And so, trying to pick people that will do well and in whom we will improve longevity involves a kind of multidisciplinary, slightly more complex pre-assessment process than I think we've had in the past. And so for the past 10 years or so, as you know, at Guys and St. Thomas's, we've been working on a comprehensive preoperative assessment process where we look at other factors which will affect longevity so that where possible, we do pick patients who will do well from this. And then we manage those anticipated complications, which we know come up after surgery in these types of patients so that we can try and prevent problems on the ward afterwards. So I think this gives us an opportunity to try and pick the right patients, but also use the waiting lists or the, the pause we have more as preparation lists where we can try and optimize patients to get the best outcomes if they do have surgery. Hmm. I mean, that's a good point, isn't it, about optimizing outcomes? You know, Bijan, uh, from, from your perspective on on this, you know, our, our job is to try and make patients live longer. And, you know, we've grown up in this era of of the ticking time bomb of an aneurysm that people often used to quote or, or so on that, that really made patients worry. And actually what's been noticeable over COVID is, is with the long waits, just actually how surprisingly few ruptures there have been on, on, on waiting lists. So, you know, the urgency to treat aneurysm sometimes overwhelmed that workup. Do you think we can change that paradigm as we go forward and, and put more effort into that, into that sort of working up, which might feed into other things? Thank you, Stephen, and thank you for generating this discussion because I think this is a very important topic. Uh, I think we're talking about moving towards a more personalized approach to aneurysm treatment, aren't we? Uh, and when you think about how that is used in some disciplines, I think the fact that we base uh, a lot of the decision-making process for our interventions on aneurysms on size seems quite crude by comparison. Um, I think as time has gone on, we uh, I do agree with you that uh, our perception of rupture risk um, at certain sizes has probably been more than it actually is. I mean, you, you'll be aware of Jonathan Earnshaw's recent editorial in the European Journal of uh, Vascular Surgery, where he um, alluded to some data from the UK um, um, uh, annual screening uh, program that showed that 
even for aneurysms between 5 and 5.4 centimeters, the rupture risk is well below uh, 1%. I think he, he quoted the risk of 0.4% um, rupture risk from, from the data. So I think we need to have a much more nuanced approach to patient selection, and Jude has already alluded to that. How do we balance the risk of intervention versus the risk of rupture? Well, we need to decide on anatomical risk, on biological risk of intervention. And if these are high, then we have to be very, very careful about which patients we put through for repair. I mean, Ian, there's, there's a challenge that comes from all of the stages, isn't it? Because as anesthetic and pre-assessment and everything else has got much, much better, the actual risk of death from aneurysm surgery is probably at an all-time low, you'd argue. I mean, even for complex FIVARs and BVARs, it's 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 uncommon to get a death within 30 days, um, and the overall mortality has fallen probably quite dramatically even in the last 10 years. So if that the benchmark was always rupture risk versus risk of death from the operation, do you think um, that as a just a binary decision is probably worth challenging now, or you know uh, do we need to be as Jude made a point, look at more subtle questions about the long-term benefits of the patient. Yeah, and I completely agree with Bijan that this has to be a very personalised approach. Uh, and we must not see it as a technical exercise. You know, I am very aware that a lot of people still do see an aneurysm and because it's treatable, think we must treat it. And I think we've got to move away from that. So, you know, because we can treat, doesn't mean we should. We've got to be much more cautious in our approach. Uh, and it's multifactorial, isn't it? You know, I mean, I've always thought, probably in a rather non-scientific way, that actually my judgment of a patient walking into clinic is one of the best judgments I'm going to get of how they're going to walk out of the hospital again. But actually, I still hold quite a lot of sway in that. And some simple tests like echocardiograms. But there's so much more to it, isn't there? There's quality of life. There is, does the 80-year-old depend on driving every day for their quality of life? And if their aneurysm is 6.2 they can never drive again. Do, do we treat them or not? That's a very different scenario sometimes to the 65-year-old who doesn't leave because they're home because they've got COPD that they can't breathe. So there are so many factors in this. Um, I mean, one thing I, I would completely agree with you, Steve, is, you know, we're just, look, we've been in the screening program now since 2009. So we've got 12 years experience of a cohort of screen detected aneurysms in London. And we've been criticised for being so sort of endovascular heavy, if you like, in our practice. So the majority of our patients who are screen detected aneurysms get endovascular therapy. And because we've been challenged that, we've looked at it. We've looked at our outcomes out to 12 years. And actually, risk of re-intervention, risk of aneurysm-related death is really low. It's not the rates you see in the literature. So if you can get away with, a, as you say, a sort of 0.5% operative mortality, a 20% 10-year re-intervention rate, then that would suggest we might be doing the right thing for that cohort. But that doesn't mean our entire aortic practice should follow that theme. You know, it's such a complex area that it goes back to the multidisciplinary team approach to this. We've all got to come to consensus. And your illusion of the ticking time bomb, unfortunately, often is ingrained in a patient's brain before they even come and see us for various reasons. Mm. GPs, yeah. other colleagues, other clinicians who don't understand aneurysmal disease. 
So once a patient has that in their mind, if you say, do you know what, I'm not sure it's appropriate for us to be treating at this stage, they don't like that. So we've got to get over that. And Jonathan Earnshaw's data is helpful in that perspective because we can give a little bit more evidence, which is contemporary, to kind of back up potentially changing thresholds for individual patients. Hmm. I mean, Jude, on that on that note, you know, again, the, this question of a technical exercise for, for you as a, a physician, the, there's the technical exercise is, is irrelevant. So, do you see things? Um, you know, I mean, I, I I'm I must admit I'm a little bit of a believer in the end, end of the bed test. You, you you do get a good feel for a patient when you when you see them, and they can walk up a flight of stairs. What do you think we should be adding to that that takes that away from being a subjective exercise to to giving us some idea of is this patient going to live five years to accrue benefit from from a procedure or is my threshold yeah yeah exactly Steve. so i think i think ian's um, end of the bed test in some ways is a quick and cursory look at the things that we do when we employ comprehensive geriatric assessment and optimization which is the methodology that underpins the service that we're running so the peripteral medicine for older people undergoing surgery service which is part of the aortic program at guys and st thomas's and what that does is have a look at di- across different domains at what's wrong with an older person so not just their medical issues but also the medical issues which have never Never yet been picked up their functional issues and that's why the walking in from the waiting room as part of the end of the best or the clinic test is relevant and then looking at other things such as cognition and then exploring those things that we've already talked about so actually what's important to that patient so that we can feed in objectively to the process of shared decision making and so the the the, um, evidence base behind using cga in the perioperative setting is certainly growing and we have a we have a kind of argument now that it has health economic benefit in reducing the cost of a longer length of stay after vascular surgery. So the impetus for using that kind of methodology in the perioperative setting is growing. Jude, you raise an interesting point there at the end. This is cost effectiveness. And one of the the difficulties with NICE as a process is uh, cost effectiveness is, is used, but actually for an aneurysm patient who starts from being fine, then as an operation that drops it, all the quality of life outcome measures and you're preventing a future event. To prove cost effectiveness is, is exceptionally difficult and you need quite a long data line on that. Um, Ian, do you think there's, there, there is a problem with the cost effectiveness side of this? Or, uh, I mean, particularly when you get to fever or bevel, when the cost is starting to really go up um, uh, and what is that threshold even achievable uh, in, a, in, a, in a really blunt way mm. so uh, I mean, cost effectiveness sorry. sorry Ian after you um, I mean you, you've touched a raw point because I think once we start looking in detail at the complex aortic repairs we're in trouble here because there, there's no chance of them being cost effective when NICE use their scientific tools to analyze the the data on the, on the procedures we're currently doing um, um, I, I do think we're missing a bit of a trick here you know, I mean, NICE's scientific methodology is way over my head. Um, but essentially what we've always thought about is long-term outcomes from aneurysm repair, our aneurysm is going to rupture, you know, that EVAR trial curve that we see at every conference we go to. But actually what we should be thinking about is if you've got an aneurysm, it's an opportunity to change someone's cardiovascular profile and prevent death from cardiovascular disease. 
So all of the evidence now shows with endovascular repair, you've got somewhere in the order of 30% will continue to expand their aneurysms after EVAR, and they have a much higher risk of cardiovascular death in the long term. So we need to change our whole way of thinking about aneurysm repair. We need to use EVAR in a way that we can guarantee a patient they will SAC regress. So we need to prove in contemporary practice we will cause SAC regression. And as part of that, reduce their long-term cardiovascular mortality, not aneurysm-related mortality, cardiovascular mortality. Then the whole evidence base shifts, and then your cost-effectiveness ratio shifts. And we're in a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an excellent point. Uh, you know, I think, Bijan, I'll come back to you there on that, on that thing of evidence, right? So what was striking about the NICE exercise was when you get into that dispassionate look at data, and we're all guilty of this across vascular surgery. It doesn't matter whether it's PAD or venous or whatever it is. You know, uh, you look at uh, the data gathering exercise. Once the first trial comes out and says this is a good thing to do, nothing else gets published. And there's a com- couple of things about that. There's fear of publishing data that looks worse than the best center down the road. There's fear of publishing bad outcomes, but also that general contribution of data to a pooled registry type exercise that will 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 give us the database that allows us to draw conclusions that Ian's talking about. How are we as a community going to drive that sort of attitude of change that will allow us to collect that data? So uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, the, the, the randomized controlled trials of EVA represent something like half a percent of the global experience uh, with EVA. So to base our decisions on that seems a bit nonsensical. Um, I'll give you an example, right? So the uh, American Aortic Research Consortium is 10 individuals who essentially are allowed to do branch and fenestrated work in the US. And they have got together and they are basically amassing all their data as a whole. Uh, And I was talking to Mark Farber earlier, who's one of these individuals. They have 2,000 already uh, complex endovascular aortic repair cases on this database. And this data is not your typical retrospective study because all their data entry is governed and monitored. So they have a gold mine now of uh, very accurate, reliable data that shows longevity, technical success, you know, and to that you could add patient quality of life, cardiovascular measures that you could monitor. Why are we not all doing this? Why is this not mandated? I think if we want to allocate resource responsibly, if we want to answer the big questions, then the next frontier is um, is is reliable, large data gathering. That's what we've all got to stop, strive towards. And it doesn't need to be in randomized controlled trials. Not everything has to be randomized controlled trials. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Jude, I mean, on that point of RCTs, I think that if, if we look at most physicians like an RCT, don't they? Because, you know, if you've done Riverox fan versus a Pixaban, you can have 4,000 patients in each arm and determine something. RCTs in surgery almost inevitably end up with 95% of the patients excluded from the study. And you've got this very narrow group that you look at that, that then extrapolate conclusions which aren't always extrapolatable. What do you, from your point of view, what do you think the, the right trial design is here? The BJAN sort of mass registry, do you think that's the right way to go? So I'm sure that 
big registry data and linking up big data sets with real life heterogeneous populations is the right way to go here. Because only if we measure what we're actually doing, we will be able to refine and nuance that better. And that includes not only things such as graft failure and mortality, but as Bijan says, quality of life data, patient reported outcome measures, and also a proper look at the multimorbidity and the frailty and the cognitive status of these patients. Because unless we're measuring what their cognition looks like at three years after a procedure, we may not know that from lots of the routinely collected data. So using big data sets, but joining them up with collaborative working between frailty experts, cognition experts, surgical teams, anaesthetists, physiotherapists for functional measures is the right way to go. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's right on these big data sets. Bijan, you also touched on another point there that is interesting. And again, it comes back to something universal in, in vascular surgery is we start off with procedures being done by a small group of people, and then they become everybody wants to go. Uh, and the, Ameri the American society has been quite clear on FIVAR, BIVAR, that the, 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 uh, because they're not FDA-approved devices in the large part, they, they're on very select use. And that seems to be a very strong advantage. Do, do, do you feel that maybe in the UK and perhaps in Europe that, that we've lost that opportunity to, to really keep a, a, a tighter grip on, on what centers do these interventions? Look, I think I know what I would want if I was a patient. Um, I would be very discerning about what technique was used or what device was used, and that comes out of insight from, from uh, uh, you know, from, from experience of what's happened in the past decade or so um, uh, globally. Now, uh, absolutely, I, I mean, I can't see why new technologies aren't rolled out in a limited way. Um, and we have a period of follow-up where we can gather some form of safety data related to it before it then, uh, um, you know, uh, is released for general use. It, I think there is too much of a tendency uh, to want to use the next, you know, exciting piece of kit, if you like, as soon as it's released. And uh, th there is a responsibility to 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 limit that. So, so I think we do need much more controlled use of new technologies. As uh, following on from that, Ian, uh, it's always been the driver in, in, in surgery to be the person who does the most, right? That's been the thing. If you, if you wanted to be a big name, you did more than anybody else. Uh, do you think we could drive a change in a paradigm that becomes the person who does the most appropriate interventions? So you drive a, a quality, not quantity argument. And do you think that's even possible? Because what, what? How can we change that narrative of wanting to be the big, the big, big person in town? A great concept, isn't it? But it's it is very difficult to quantify, uh, and goes back to some of the things we've touched on, which is what what is the right outcome measure to choose? You know, is it first day mortality? Of course, it's not. It's it's got to be much broader than that. And of course, at the moment. Our registries are only designed to look at 30-day outcomes, 30-day mortality. It's completely inappropriate for complex repairs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of aspects here that have to change. And I think um, Bijan's absolutely right. We need less people doing less of it, actually, but in big centres. Hmm. Um, you know, if you look in the NVR, the the most recent NVR report on complex aortic work, 
there are far too many centres still doing very low volumes of cases. And that leads to a number of problems. So it means there'll be people being treated inappropriately. There'll be people getting the wrong kind of interventions. There'll be people not getting treated at all because it's the old surgical bravado. If, well, if I can't do it, I'm not sending it on um, to you know the person down the road who's doing so many of them. Uh, so there are multiple areas of this. At the end of the day, the person's suffering is the patient at the end of this. And I, I, I genuinely don't really understand why our community hasn't had an appetite to change this. You know, there is no appetite really within the specialist commissioning to drive a change in practice. And, and ultimately, that, that's where the budgets come from. They, they could drive it. There's absolutely no appetite from the companies to drive it because they could if they wanted to. And there doesn't seem to be an, an appetite within our own surgical communities to change it, uh, other than a few of us. Um, so across the board, that has to change. There has to be a culture change. And my personal opinion is certainly for complex aortic work, and that includes FIVAR for me and open repair. We need super regional aortic centres for acute as well. Um, and America proves that can work. Um, so, you know, I don't know how many centres that is, but I've got an idea. It's way less than we have at the moment. Hmm. And in those centres, less surgeons doing the cases. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that same feeling seems to be permeating bigger groups, and we've we've had that discussion quite extensively today in appropriateness during the Venus sessions at Charing Cross as well. And I think we have the same feelings. Um, Jude, you know that sort of thing. We've we we've been really trying to restructure MDTs. You know, we've often talked about the concept of having a multi-center MDT. Do you, do you think that's sort of, um, uh, it, it's quite difficult from your point of view as a, a POPs person in an MDT to challenge a decision from a surgeon uh, if you don't think it's right or, or vice versa? I mean, how do you think we make MDTs work in a, in a process that there's an advocate for the patient doing the right thing and taking it away from that technical exercise? Because really nowadays, anything can probably be treated. You know? so, so I think that's about, collaborative team working isn't it and knowing where people's strengths lie and if you have people involved who are expert at appraising certain medical conditions multimorbidity frailty and they have a good working relationship with a surgeon who is also very experienced at appraising a patient performing the operation looking after them and you have a good working relationship I personally don't find it difficult in the slightest to challenge in our MDTs I'm sure Bijan will testify to <laughs> but as these services do spring up and we really see across the, the UK that there are increased increasing numbers of POP services being established for whole pathway involvement in the care of all sorts of surgical patients, vascular and others, I do think that we'll see good working relationships. Of course, when you begin this, it is difficult to have awkward conversations and challenge existing practice, but that's just about good team working, using data to drive pathways and making sure that you've got patient-related issues at the center of that. And I think once you, once you get that pathway working, then these MDTs can be very effective. Uh, thanks, Jude. So I think uh, we're getting to the end of this. So I'm going to ask each of you in turn to say if you can use your crystal ball to see where we'll be in five years' time in, in, in aortic surgery, where would you like to see things? We'll start with you, Ian, and then go to Bijan and finish with Jude. One thing or a... Whatever you like, yes, the free-for-all. <laughs> well, firstly, hopefully I'll be retired. Come now. So apart from that, I, I mean, I, I go back to my last point. I, I hope more 
more appropriate use of endovascular technology uh, with more cautious uh, and detailed um, looks at long-term outcomes. Um, and, uh, you know, putting the patient first, which I, I don't think we have done in the past. I think that personalised approach that Bijan alluded to right at the start, I think that should be at the forefront of our aortic practice in five years' time. Patients should be at the front. Bijan? Yeah, so, so I'd go with that in five years' time. That personalised approach being having been informed by better quality data uh, gathered from large numbers of patients, uh, which includes taking into account uh, the effect we have on patients' quality of life when we carry out these interventions, uh, that will inform the decision as to whether this is in their best interests. Jude? So similarly, I'd like to see multi-specialty working underpinning these pathways of care so that we can facilitate shared decision making and using waiting lists or time spent on aneurysm surveillance to prepare patients for surgery, if that's going to be the right thing for them, or to turn them down in a meaningful way early on in the pathway rather than continuing surveillance unnecessarily. So very patient-specific multi-specialty working. Uh, thanks, Jude. So I think um, thank you all for your for your time this evening. I think uh, this fits very nicely with the general concept in, in vascular surgery that the time for appropriate patient-centered care across the board is here. And we've got to start moving both the conversations within uh, ourselves as specialists and the industry as a whole towards that direction of really from all sides driving appropriate care. Because I think Ian's point about um, everybody needing to be involved in, in driving that change is absolutely spot on. So thanks very much for your time and um, uh, have a good evening. This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to radcliffevascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Vascu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>